welcome to the Advance Your Art podcast, where we talk about the journey from artist to entrepreneur and everything in between. You've worked hard to hone your craft. Now take it to the next level with tips, techniques, strategies, and routines used by successful artists to grow their businesses and careers. Now, let's get started and have some fun with your host, Yuri Cataldo. Welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing really good. Thanks for having me. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. It's my pleasure. Thank you for taking the time to chat with me. I'd like to start off this evening by asking you how you describe yourself and what you do. Ooh. So that's a really interesting question. Um, So I I guess like for the majority of my life, I would say that I was a writer and that that has kind of like changed. I feel like now, like with my bio and stuff, when I have to send it out, I say like queer activist and storyteller. That tends to be the the main label. Mm-hmm. But like on an interpersonal level, I'm also you know uh, I'm mixed multiracial uh, for several generations. So that's like so queer mixed race activist storyteller. It used to just be writer, and then at one point it, it used to just be activist. Um, so it continues to grow. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's great. So let's, there's a couple of different things in there that I want to get into, but let's, let's start with the writer part. What made you want to become a writer? I feel like I always kind of knew I wanted to be a writer when I was a little kid, you know, like little kids are like, I want to be a fireman or like, you know, I want to be a policeman or I want to be a movie star. Um, I think like the first profession that I remember really wanting to do was to write books and then it changed like a year later i was like i want to be a stand-up comedian and then i went back to i want to write books <laughs> and it just kind of like always stayed there um in the back of my head even though i've done like i've had almost every job that you can possibly imagine doing uh but in the back of my head i'm like well you know this is just the what's going to get me by until i finally finish uh, a book <laughs> and then hopefully you know that will that will change the course, but you know, that's also a long shot too. Mm-hmm. So now I feel like, you know, cause I'm 35, I've gotten older, um, that I, I feel like you can always be a writer as long as you're writing, right. And as long as you like go through that process and it kind of doesn't really matter what your day job is anymore. Um, yeah. And I've only recently allowed myself to be like, no, screw it. You're a writer. Um, you know, like you do have a book coming out and you know, but, even if the book wasn't coming out, I would still be a writer. I'd still be a storyteller. Yeah. So that's that's a very interesting definition that you and journey that you have just kind of described. The the idea of how do you define what a writer is, um, even if let's say you're not a published author. So could you just talk a little bit more about then your journey in that? Like how. How long has it taken you to kind of let go of, of one definition into another? And, and how has that process been personally to you? Yeah, so uh, in undergrad, I actually went to school with uh, my major was, had a concentration in creative writing. It was writing, linguistics, and creative writing. And then I knew I was going to an MFA program. So like that whole part of my life, my 20s, was like 
I'm a writer, blah, blah, blah. And I might be, you know, waiting tables at this Waffle House off Highway Interchange. But I'm a writer. Um, and then after grad school, uh, I was living in New York and I needed a job. I got involved in activism and I started working for a political organization. And because I wasn't doing any creative writing every day, I kind of started to think like, oh, well, you know, maybe I'm not so much a writer. Um, I did do a lot of writing, period. Like I was uh, the digital director for like a whole year and a half. I was like a one person digital team for this political outfit, uh, which is kind of left of the Democrats. Um, so I wrote all the fundraising emails. I handled all the web content, all the social media. So it was like every day I was writing to like a very large audience. Um, at that point, at that job, our like big active email list was about 200, 300,000 people. And so I was like, well, you know, every couple of days I like send out a fundraising email, which is kind of like the most amazing writing prompt ever. It's like, you know, tell a story that is political in nature that inspires people to give their credit card over the internet. <laughs> and you can tell how well you're doing by how much money you raise. Right. Uh, yes. so you get kind of like instant feedback. Yeah. Um, and so I was like, yeah, you know, this isn't poetry. These aren't short stories. It's not fiction. Um, but it is still, I was like, it's close enough to writing that I can feel like, you know, if, if I'm not working on the novel or the short story collection, at least I am still doing some sort of writing. And at least it's, you know, having like a net good out there in the world. Um, and then a lot of things happened. I think the, um, to be like super honest, like the 2016 presidential election was really rough as like somebody who worked in progressive electoral politics. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I kind of like gave my whole life over to, you know, working in the primaries. You know, I worked with a lot of groups closely associated with Bernie Sanders and helped raise a boatload of money for Bernie Sanders and for other progressive candidates. Mm -hmm. um, I also, um, you know, did a lot of local organizing around New York City area um, and just got like completely beat down. And it's like it's probably not the most um, polite thing to say is somebody who like works in activism and really cares about like the movement for justice and liberation. But I got burnt out mm -hmm. super hard and I had to take like a long, hard look at myself afterwards. It was like, you know, you, you basically worked like over a year of seven days a week, you know, 13 to 15 hours every day, uh, you know, ignored your family, ignored your personal life. My health went to crap. And, and at the end of it, what did we get? And like, we got the Trump election. And so I was like, well, you know, it might be time to put this activist at off for a little bit and um, pick up the writer one again. It's, and I feel like I saw that a lot with just within like my social circle mm -hmm. around New York uh, with a lot of people sort of like going back to their roots after the election of like, you know, what are, what is the thing that sustains me? What is it that I'm really trying to do or feel like I'm called to do versus like, what is this thing that I'm doing day in, day out? Um, because I think for lots of people, you know, the 2016 election was a wake up call. And, and for me, especially, I wasn't like, you know, I wasn't at Hillary Clinton's campaign office or Bernie Sanders, for that matter. But I was like, you know, adjacently kind of close. And it was still a major wake up call for me to be like, let me go back to the roots of who I am as a person. And that's the only way that I feel like I can continue to live healthy. <laughs> right. So how has that then realization affected your 
writing now and what you do for a living? Um, so that's interesting. So I, I left that job, uh, <laughs> the, like super demanding, terrible job. But um, I, I was also able to get uh, a good bit of time off, you know, from like working overtime for basically an entire year straight. I had like a solid month of paid time off in New York City. And instead of going anywhere, I just like stayed in my apartment and finished my short story collection. I had done about half of it when I was in grad school. I graduated in 2013. And so for like three years, I kind of just sat on it and built up my day job career. But once I had like the time off, I was like, okay, I'm just gonna like throw all the mashed potatoes on the wall and like, like just like shut myself in and just write like every day. And it, if it's good, if it's bad, it doesn't matter. I'll look at it later. Mm-hmm. Uh, but just like get it out all on the page. Um, and then my job, I, so I have like several jobs, uh, but my day job and my like secondary day job involve a lot of travel so after after the election and after that time off i was like oh wow i have like a good chunk of like what is a manuscript uh but then i had to go on the road and do all these other things so whenever i found myself like alone in a hotel room Mm -hmm. uh you know sometimes when traveling you're like oh you know i'm in this town i don't know anybody like let me go out to a bar or like whatever um and i started just like locking myself into the hotel room of like i have no other outside distraction I'm just going to turn my laptop on and start editing and, you know, like adding, subtracting to the different stories, pushing them around in different ways. Um, and then that, that kind of has become my habit. I tend to have to travel for work about once a month and I get to the airport like super early and find my spot and pop open my laptop or more and more my phone. I've been like experimenting with doing creative writing on my phone. Um, and we'll just like write while I'm at the airport. Um, and write while I'm flying and like write at the hotel. Um, and that's like, I read that, um, who was it? Maya Angelou, uh, back when she was alive, um, that she would do, she would like rent out a hotel for like a week and just sort of like lock herself in there and write in complete isolation. Um, and that's like sort of slowly becoming the same thing that, I'm doing. I remember when I read that about her, I was like, oh, that's so cool and interesting. I wish I had the money to do that. Um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and now I'm like, hmm, maybe I can like trick my jobs into sending me places for work so I can have that excuse to do that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> without having to pay for it. Um, I think there is something about isolation, though, sort of removing yourself away from things and, and trying to find the opportunities in life to really take a step back. Mm-hmm. There's there's one person that I know who will purposely book flights from New York to like Tokyo, uh, round trip flights, and will write all the way on the plane there, have a whatever sleep for a little bit, and then fly back and then finish editing his book. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> so maybe so maybe you just need to get to your company to send you a little bit further. And then you could just exactly. isolate yourself on a on an airplane for eight hours at a time. Yeah, Sydney, Australia, here I come. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So with with you, what you're currently working on, your short story collection, uh, what did you notice about your writing when you were doing it in 2013 versus your writing in 2017? Oh my gosh, um, a whole bunch. <laughs> 
Uh, and then, so my, my collection is actually like 50% of the stories were written in 2013, the bulk of them. And then the other 50% were written in the weeks after the election. So, and I, I feel like you can kind of tell because the ones written right after the election are, are very inherently political. Uh, <laughs> and also like, you know, like my political ideology, I've always been kind of like a liberal progressive person, but working within progressive politics really sort of like sharpened or honed my political ideology and, um, you know, how I'm able to articulate that, especially, you know, working for like several years, uh, being the writing voice of a progressive political organization. Uh, so like, you know, just the ways that I would talk about income inequality and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I was super nervous actually about the stories that I wrote in 2013. Cause that was like my like pre woke years. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I like went back and like really looked at like how all these characters are portrayed and like, what are some of the like maybe underlying like stereotypes or assumptions that I had then that needed to be challenged. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, you know, I think I, I tend to do a pretty good job with that anyway, but I think it's always good to like look back. Um, another writing professor had told me, well, there's that saying, um, especially for like nonfiction, which is like to wait seven years and then write things down. So you have like the space and the time to get away from it. Um, and it seemed like three, four years was actually a really healthy distance from those, that first half of the collection of like coming back to those stories and actually being very objective of like, you know, how are women portrayed in your story? And like, if it was a movie, would it pass that like Bledgeville test? Like, do two women have names? Do they talk to each other about something other than a man? Like, does that happen in your story? And, <laughs> and if not, why not? And, um, and so it was, it was a lot easier to do that because I wasn't as close to that material. Um, and I think some of the new material, I, I, I made sure that, and I feel like this is going to be like a weird thing that I will do with my bodies of writing going forward. Um, is that I don't think people really understand how elections work if you've never really worked on them, like as a campaign manager or deputy campaign manager. So I have a short story that is just about working on an election. Um, and it's not a fun, happy story. <laughs> <laughs> right. I can imagine so. <laughs> they often aren't fun and happy experiences. Um, but I think that like, it kind of changes how you think about democracy and participatory democracy to see how much we've outsourced the labor onto people who, you know, don't get paid any more than like maybe 25k a year and basically like slave away and have no life and no days off and no expectation of privacy. Uh, but those are the people who are really running the election. Um, so post you know, post my election time, post my woke time, I'm like every everything, every collection I write is going to have an election story in it mm -hmm. or like an activist movement story to sort of help. Hopefully they're entertaining, but also hopefully they like shed some light for people of like, you know, what you see on TV is not always what's happening when we talk about elections, when we talk about politics. Mm -hmm. So with that, could you... Tell me a little bit more then about your your short story collection, Dark Corners. Um, how it was because it's your first, I believe yeah, it's your first short story yeah. collection. So could you yeah. talk about um, so a little bit about like like if it's if there's a way to sum summarize it a bit more. Uh, also, is it how is it is it how is it being published and how did that come about? 
Yeah. So it's um, I'm I'm sometimes struggle with like what is like the the catchy elevator elevator pitch synopsis of the book, but uh, or the collection. But it's really like it's a collection of very quirky stories about the intersections of America that we don't normally get to see or that don't normally predominate our narratives, right? So it's not like, it's not a bunch of white men falling in love with the manic pixie dream girl and learning something about themselves as they destroy her. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a lot of queer characters, a lot of queer people of color. It's a lot of racially ambiguous characters. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people who are sex workers, people who are social media managers. Um, and, and, Every story is sort of about this like meeting place of um, or, or about these intersections, these like shared meeting places where different ideas, different things kind of come together in unexpected ways, um, which is why I called it Dark Corners. Uh, cause I, I think that sort of like sums up the kind of like the kinds of people you run into in Dark Corners and who are they and why and, and what that is about. Um, and it's getting published by Running Wild Press, uh, which is, I'm in California and this, uh, is this independent press out here in California. Uh, they're relatively young and new and, um, they sort of do brand themselves as like publishing, you know, writers from marginalized communities. So people of color, women, LGBT people. Um, those are sort of the voices that they're like looking to, um, uplift. And so when I heard that, I was like, good, here's my manuscript. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great. So how did you first meet the, meet that publishing company? So, yeah. Um, so the publisher, Lisa, um, I went to grad school with her. Uh, she graduated several years before me, mm-hmm. um, but this, she was not the first person that I reached out to. Um, and when I moved out to California, you know, ran into her socially and she was talking about her press and I was like, Oh, that's interesting. Um, and I was fully planning on self publishing my collection. Like I had, I had hired an outside freelance editor. I had like hired a graphic designer. Um, I was about to hire somebody to like digitally put it in ebook form and just go balls to the wall and try to do it myself. Um, and Lisa was like, oh, you should send it to me. And I was like, oh, OK. And so I sent it to her and she got back to me, um, you know, fairly quickly of like, oh, no, we can we can publish this, um, you know, like let us do some of this work also, uh, which is great. Um, but I also I had sent it to. So, like, I guess from working in politics, I'm a big believer in like, you know, who, you know, and your network and your connections mm-hmm. is like a good way of getting your foot in the door. Um, so I had sent my manuscript to like several classmates who have gone on to start, uh, publishing companies or like, you know, their own labels, um, you know, to put out work. And, and so it was, it was the, the awkward rejections of being rejected by people you went to school with. (laughs) People who were in workshops like, your writing is so great, I can't wait till it gets published. And then they're like, we're not going to publish this. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And I'm like, ow. It's a different kind of thing. But, you know, of course, all the feedback I got was like, it's not that the, the collection is bad. It's just that it's not the kind of thing that those particular publishing companies felt like they would be good at selling. 
which was an aspect of the literary world that I didn't really get to realize until I was in graduate school, um, which is, is how much that's relying on that. Like, what is, what is the style of which you write? What is the content of which you write? And that things like agents and publishers, you know, kind of really find their niche of like, we're really good at pushing this stuff. So that's the only stuff we're going to push or like okay. agents who are like, I'm really good at selling these kinds of books. So I'm only going to take on these kinds of writers. And so like when you get rejected, it's not so much that it's like, oh, they hate you. They hate your work. It's uh, they don't believe they can sell it, mm-hmm. uh, which is what I had to tell myself after several former classmates <laughs> or several <laughs> alumni of my or alumnus with me. were like, no, we're, we're not going to do this. Yeah. Um, but running wild press, you know, they're, that's their, their brand is, you know, writers from marginalized communities. Um, and like, you know, uplifting these voices that we often don't get to hear in mainstream media. Uh, and so because of that, it's, it's a really, really good fit. Oh, that's great. With, so with your, you know, your, the process of that you went through after all the rejection, um, I know you mentioned it briefly about just kind of telling yourself that's not exactly their, you know, what their focus is. But are there, were there certain things that you had to, to, to learn or teach yourself to get past the, the fear of, of continually putting yourself out there and then maybe getting rejected? And, and how did you be able, you know, to continue to move on past those? Oh, man. So when I was an undergrad, I really didn't give a shit and was just sending things out to every single online or print literary journal uh, that I could get a hold of. I was, um, you know, I, I was told in undergrad that, like, the way you go about publishing is you either do the targeted, directed, you know, I think my work fits really well for this publication. So that's the track I'm going to focus on. Or you do the like spaghetti at the ceiling. Like you just send everything everywhere and you see what sticks. And so I, I've always been, or I started that way of being that guy of like, I'll just send everything everywhere because I don't know these people and who cares? Um, so I used to have a very healthy level of rejection. Uh, <laughs> and over time it was like, it's the one or two rejections that really stick with you that ended up being the ones that sort of like, crushed it for me (laughs) and i also used to like systematize um submissions so i would say like every sunday afternoon i'm going to sit down and you know regardless of how many tears or blood is shed in that like three hour period like that's the period that i submit stuff um and and i was really really good at that and i started to rack up like a lot of like online journals most of which don't exist anymore this is back you know in the early half of the early 2000s Um, but I had like, I had two really, really bad rejections. Um, so the first one was, I forget the name of this online scene, but they rejected me within five minutes of submitting. Um, and that kind of hurt. I was like, I don't even think you read this or like, maybe you read like the first three sentences and were like, nope, it's done. Um, and so that really hurt. And I was like, dang. And like, that's like one of the fastest turnaround rejections I've ever had. Um, the second was the longest time it took for me to get rejected, uh, which was in grad school. So one of the stories in my collection, um, 
like when I got at workshop, my very first workshop in grad school, the professor was like, this is actually perfect. I wouldn't change anything. I could see this in the New Yorker and you should send it to the New Yorker. Uh, so we sent it to the New Yorker, the New Yorker passed. Um, I sent it to, I won't say the name, another very high up there literary journal and um, didn't hear back anything. But because they were so big, I did not send that story or sh- show that story to anyone um, for almost for like almost two years. Because uh, I was like, oh, I'm waiting to hear back. I'm waiting to hear back. One day I'll hear back. Like they're super busy. You know, this was unsolicited, so it's in a slush pile, but, like, I believe in this story so much uh, that I know it's going to happen, I know it's going to happen, I know it's going to happen. And, like, almost two years later, I get an email. I even stopped using that email account because life moves on, uh, but just happened to randomly check it. And um, I get a, a letter from them, an email from them. They're like, oh, sorry, our computer system, we switched over to a new computer system, we lost a bunch of data and we had lost your submission, um, but then we found it, and we're not going to publish it. And, <laughs> <Ouch>. <laughs> and that killed me. That was <laughs> <laughs> um, and like I, I think my advice is like you can't you can't let these things become personal because they really do sort of just like shut you down. Um, and then so since then. A couple of things happened since then. I got like incredibly politicized uh, and started to have some like ideas about the way in which publishing the literary world works. And, you know, like any other system, it's one that like advantages wealthy white men, wealthy, cisgendered, heterosexual white men more than other po- you know people. And um, so then getting published in like smaller journals, online journals or anthologies and things became less and less important to me. Uh, and I started to realize that, like, my publication track record doesn't say anything really about the quality of my writing. I think publication track records say a lot about the publishing industry and what people believe sells. Um, and if if my writing's not tied to that, like, I feel like I'm not trying to become super wealthy. Um, I'm trying to just, like, express and get my art out there in, in the same way that, like, somebody who's a musician and does like a DIY album, you know, and they're like, I put a lot of work into these songs. I made this album. I'm putting it out there for the world because that's part of the, you know, creative life cycle is like releasing it for an audience. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it, it needs to make the most money. I mean, I hope it makes money and I'm going to like pound the pavement and bust my ass to sell my collection. Uh, <laughs> and make sure <laughs> Everyone I talk to for a good four years buys my book um, <laughs> because it's the nature of the game, yeah. uh, unfortunately, and like that's how capitalism works. But like I, and it took some work, but I, I don't think that like my worth as a writer is going to be tied to sales, and it's not going to be tied to a publication track record. Uh, for me, like you know, my work and the quality of my work is is within the work, and if you want to know if I'm a good writer or not, then you should read it. Uh, <laughs> sure. Well, good. So lastly, I'd like to ask you, what would you say has been the best advice you've ever received? This was, oh my gosh. Uh, So I I had originally thought of like a couple of different things, but actually one of my professors from graduate school um, reached out to me when I was, when I was on my first election or shortly after my first election where I was a campaign manager. 
Um, and, you know, she was like, oh, how's life treating you? How's New York? You know, like, how's the writing coming? And I was like, you know, to be honest, like, I haven't really been writing a lot, which is why I haven't been, you know, socializing with, like, the online alumni community as much. Uh, I guess I feel kind of bad about it. But I found this job. I have this day job. I'm making more money than I've ever made in my life. Uh, and I'm really good at it. And I, like, really believe in this cause. And her advice was, she was like, writing is always going to be there. You're always going to be a writer. Uh, if you need to put it down and survive and feed yourself and pay your bills, do that. And when you're ready, you'll come back. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it was it was just that simple. It was like, oh, I don't have to feel bad for not writing anymore. And that was in, that was like in like 2014. So I didn't even go back to writing shortly thereafter. You know, I, I waited for the election um, to burn me out, uh, but it, it was the right time to do that. It was, you know, I was like, OK, I like set it down for a while and I did this other thing, this political job. And now that's a garbage fire. Uh, so I'm going to set that aside and I'm going to pick this thing back up. It's always going to be there for you to pick it back up. And, you know, capitalism, patriarchy, racism, sexism, ableism, they're like horrible structures of power that will divest you of your time and distract you and derail your life. And until we dismantle all those systems, we should allow ourselves to let those things happen, like if if they happen. So like if you're struggling as a writer and you're working on the manuscript and, you know, things are getting really hard, like it might be the best route to set it down for a minute and make sure that you're okay. Um, this also reminds me of some advice that my mom likes to say all the time, uh, which is from airplane flights from their safety manual. You know, it's like, you got to put on your mask first, secure your mask before you help other people (laughs) secure yours. Um, which is not selfish. It's just like self care, right? You can't do any good in the world if you're not doing well yourself. Right. Wonderful. Well, Tihi, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. I really appreciate it. If the listeners would uh, like to read more of your work or get in touch with you, what is the best way they can do that? You can... um, I don't have the publishing date as of yet. So my book, Dark Corners, will be out either at the very end of this year, 2018, or early 2019 by Running Wild Press. Uh, you can find me on Facebook at Tihirij, um, which is my online moniker. Um, and that's probably the best way to get in touch with me, unfortunately. Unfortunately, I'm on Facebook way more than I should be or want to be. <laughs> Not a problem. And I will make sure to put a, uh, a link in the show notes so listeners can click right through. Cool. Thank you. <laughs> sure, of course. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Advance Your Art Podcast. If you like this episode, please go into iTunes and give us a five-star rating. And while you're there, hit the subscribe button so that every single time I release a new episode, it will go directly to you without even thinking about it. If you're interested in hearing older episodes, please go to AdvanceYourArt.com where you can find the catalog of everything I've done so far, as well as contact information and projects I'm working on. Thank you again, and have a great day.